yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow, now is there? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A. Trunk. Hey everybody, it's Eddie Trunk, and welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast, bringing you newsmaking interviews with the biggest names in rock and metal every Thursday. New episodes, be sure to subscribe so you do not miss one. And as I tell you guys each and every week, everything you hear on this podcast originated on my radio show, Trunk Nation, which is live Monday through Friday, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, noon to 2 Pacific, or anytime on demand on the Sirius XM app. If you are only listening to this podcast and you are in the U.S. and Canada, you are only getting a tiny, tiny taste of what I do on the radio every day. So we encourage you to come on board with us at Sirius XM and join Trunk Nation again Monday through Friday. 3 to 5 Eastern Time on 103. And if you can't listen at that time, you know the deal. You can always get full shows, interviews, on-demand, audio, video, more on the SiriusXM app. like to bring you some samples of some of my interviews and guests here on the podcast. And we have been on a crazy tear with guests in the last two, three weeks. So this week, we are bringing you an extra-large extended episode of the Eddie Trunk podcast. We're going to start with Tommy Shaw, of course, from Styx. Tommy just joined me to just shoot the shit and talk for a bit. We had a great conversation. Tommy's always fun to visit with. There is video of this. If you are a SiriusXM subscriber, you can watch this on the SiriusXM app. Tommy talks about the upcoming touring for the band and uh, even talks about how he wrote Renegade. I mean, there's just great stuff in here. Great hang with really cool guy and a guy that I've had the pleasure of knowing for a very long time. Tommy Shaw of Sticks opens up the show this week. And then a second interview, and it's with Tim Bogart. Tim Bogart is the son of Neil Bogart, the founder of Casablanca Records. And bringing you this interview is timely because this past Friday, the film Spinning Gold opened in theaters. And it is a film that Tim Bogart wrote and directed about his dad and the history of Casablanca, which for rock fans is predominantly known as the label that started Kiss, but also brought a ton of other music to the world, Donna Summer, Parliament, many others. It's a really fun biopic that's out there right now, so I thought the timing to bring you this interview, which originally happened live on the radio a couple weeks ago, would be great to present as the podcast in case you've seen the film or plan on going to see the film Spinning Gold. So we'll start with Tommy Shaw, Tim Bogart second, a special extended podcast this week. Here's Tommy from Sticks. Enjoy. Tommy, good to see you, buddy. Hey, Eddie. Good to see you. You nice too, to man. We were just uh, in the same place not too long ago. I had a chance yeah. to see Sticks in uh, Key West at Rock Island. And, That's right. uh 
I didn't get a chance to actually see you there. I talked to JY for a while backstage, but I didn't see you. But I saw you play and sing, and the band sounded amazing. That was a fun gig. Oh, that was a blast, wasn't it? It really was. What a great setting, huh? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, we, that was good singing weather, too. <laughs> well, you were just talking about that because you were talking about uh, you, you guys just played some shows recently where the altitude and – dryness and stuff kind of wreaks havoc a little bit on singers right yeah the ocean is great because there's all you know there's all that ionized air uh in in the mountains and in the desert though the um it's dry and uh cold and uh, so you just have to adapt we have we have uh you know we've been doing this long enough where we have our little secrets you know uh, solutions to how to keep going um i when we first started doing that, I would, we, was vocalists would have a hard time, but we we figured out, you know, a way to get through it now, and and it's no big deal. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because the thing that always comes out um, when when people talk about you and your your singing, it's it's remarkable to hear your vocals still and how great they are. And I'm not just saying that because you're sitting here in front of me. We're doing this on Zoom, so people will be able to see this as well but um it's your voice is still amazing and so many people are floored by it myself included do you what what is your process before you do a show are you a big warm-up warm-down guy or are you one of those guys that just walks out there and does it and it's just there for you well I, every day i get up and and just just get a sense of you know i'll, t I'll talk and see see if i have a speaking voice and then take it from there and uh just uh you know, uh, I'll just try it out as the day goes on. Uh, uh, when you're in, like, like it, when, when we're in Tennessee, uh, or, where Jeannie and I live, uh, you, you've always got, you know, it's so green and, and got plenty of rainfall. And so there's always things blooming and, you know, uh, or, the, or decomposing in the, in the fall. And the, so there's always stuff that gets on your vocal cords here. So I, I get, you know, like right now you can hear a bass in my voice, but when, when things are in season like that, my voice goes up and it's scratchy here. So, so I have to take like a, uh, you know, uh, Allegra and that sort of thing here. When I get on a plane and go somewhere else while I'm on the plane, I get my voice back, which is, it's crazy. Uh, it, when we get to the gigs, we always, we've got a, um, a warm up thing that we do where we where we we sing we we sing this little thing that goes all the way up from from the low notes here all the way up to the high notes and then back down and then we do it again in a minor key and then, and then we do um we'll do like a cappella uh, choruses of uh blue collar man uh rock in the paradise the stuff that's high and it's got a lot of things like that so we can hear our blend but we we do we we pay a lot of attention to it and and uh, I've shown the guys uh, in the band just just a few things that they can do to make singing easier, and it's really made a big difference for all of us. I'm, you know, I'm included. I'm I'm still a student of it. You know, I I have I'm extraordinarily outspoken against bands that put tracks and sing to tracks and have fake vocals and stack all that stuff. I I as a rock fan, it's so offensive to me. 
and I am seeing it become an epidemic out there. And uh, whether it's technology or acceptance, it makes me crazy. So when I hear stuff like you can hear it, what say again, Tommy, you can hear it. Oh yeah. I mean, and I think about how, when I watch what you guys do and the pride and the work that you put in to singing, I mean, if, if, you could make a case with the way stick songs are recorded and all those vocals, you know, you could almost say, well, yeah, I could understand if the band, you know, how to get some help. But the fact that you put, that's what makes me so nuts about the bands that fake it, the amount of work that, and pride you put into the craft to do it for real. Yeah. We, we, we've, uh, we always say uh, every mistake you hear tonight is being performed live for you, you know, <laughs> Uh, well, I remember, I remember being at a stick show once. I don't know how long ago it was, but you, you, I don't know if I think it was you came to the stage and you on the mic, you go, just want everybody to know everything that's being heard up here is, is live. And I think you said in the original key. Yes. Original keys. We, we never, you see, you, you, that, that's the slippery slope. You know, you do that uh, and you're just going to have to keep doing that. Um, it's it just sounds right in the original keys. But I don't want to, uh, I'm not asking you to name names or anything, but you guys share bills with a lot of bands as a band that puts so much pride into singing and doing this the w the right way is it, it. I would imagine as a musician, it's got to be infuriating if you're on a festival or something for a band to come on before or after you, that's all on a pro tools rig. And everyone's talking about how great they sound. I, I would want to <laughs> blow my brains out backstage. No, I, Hey, every band is responsible for themselves. You know, we, uh, whatever they want to do, if they've, if they've made it onto the same bill with us, then, you know, it's their, they've they've accomplished you know enough to you know for us to all be on the same playing field like that but within a band you know you have to, you have to do what you have to do some some people don't have enough singers to do that so they 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 help it out a little bit like that it's just uh, we're just hard headed um you know, and and I, I I'm like you. I I want to be able to tell that they're singing live because people make mistakes, or you sing flat, or or you sing a wrong word, or you know, especially you know when you've been out on the road for a while and and you're you're uh, you're sleep deprived, and uh, you know, uh, you're just kind of you got that road brain, so you're you're uh, you know your 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 best. Uh, hours of the day or the hour or two that you're on stage because you're just fine you know you're, you're you're all your adrenaline's up and you're just firing on all your cylinders and it's it's such a freaking happy place to be uh it's, you know that that's that's the other thing this band we we practice so much and, and we you know we call each other out on yeah what was that you know and our, our front of house guy cookie he'll let us know He'll, you know, nice work on that one, you know. So we, we really strive to to play it as, as correctly as possible, which is impossible uh, when you're when you're performing and um, you know the, you've got different elements every night. You just have to adapt and you, you just kind of get out there and and say, oh, let's go. And, uh, and this is what we've got, and this is what we're working with. Um, you know, so there's there's different times where a room will be will sound funny. You know, where 
the bass cabinets will be in an odd place where, where you're hearing too much bass. Um, so you, you just you have to be very adaptable. And, and well, that, and that is and that is the whole point of for me as a fan going to see a band live. How were they live that night? You know, I, I saw Aerosmith not long ago, and I remember uh, uh, Joe Perry and Steven Tyler thanked the crowd at the end. It was in Vegas and just their most recent residency. And Steven said to Joe, Joe, man, we really, we really fucked up a lot of times tonight, didn't we? And Joe just kind of nodded and said, yeah, we did. And he turned to the crowd and he said, you guys still had a good time, right? And the crowd went crazy. And to me, that's the whole thing. And you guys as musicians, there will be probably be things in the course of a show that bother you that you know was something wrong, a tuning thing, a vocal thing that nobody in the audience, you know, picked up on. I mean, nobody listens like the like you would listen, I'm sure. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of that, too. Things that bother you, yeah. the crowd probably had no clue about. Yeah, and we're 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 really lucky. We, uh, we have little go off the rails things happen but we get right back on the rails so fast that that if that you don't know it if you're in the audience but i had uh, i had uh something happened the other night we're doing this song from uh the mission uh, mission to mars album and uh it starts out with me playing an arpeggio uh and there's there's a there's a count that that we get and uh, I had my I, I was hearing the room ambiently. I didn't have my in-ears all the way. And I, I, I realized it just at the last second. <laughs> I mean, I think I may have missed like, a, like uh, two bars of the intro. And I heard everybody doing that. So I had not turned up my in-ears. I was just hearing the, the, the hall. So I wasn't hearing my monitor. And so, but I made it. <laughs> I walked right up and, and I hit it right on the downbeat. Um, so it wasn't a mistake. It was just, I, I, I must've had this odd look on my face because I looked at every, all the guys in the band were looking at me like, uh Oh, <laughs> and it, and it wasn't an, uh, -oh. it was just, um, it was, it was, I just caught it quickly. Hey, Tommy, <laughs> what came, what came first for you in your career as a musician, was it more singing or more playing guitar? I mean, you're equally great at both, but what, what do you consider yourself more, a singer or guitar player? What was the first thing you gravitated towards, even prior to Sticks? You know, you had bands prior to joining Sticks. Well, I was always a singing guitar player. Uh, and when I was a little kid, uh, my, I mean, little, like the little, you know, two, three-year-old, three, maybe three years, two or three-year-old, kid my grandfather who was retired uh, he had this this uh, just his job to keep him busy uh, he would go around and he would replace all the newspapers in the newspaper machines and and back then it would be we'd get all the nickels and dimes there was mostly nickels i guess and uh, i have a picture of me on uh, this porch swing big chubby baby and he would give me a nickel to sing a song for him. And I would listen to, I would hear the, the, what my sisters and sister and brothers were listening to on the radio or on their record players. And I was, uh, I would remember the choruses. And so he would, so he would pay me to sing what I knew. So that's kind of, I always think, you know, if you're getting paid to perform, that makes you a professional. And so, 
You were professional at four. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, when I got my first guitar, I was 10. And then I, within a couple of years, I was professional. I was playing professionally then when I was 12. Yeah. It's always interesting to me, though, because so it sounds like you enjoy both equally and embrace both equally because there's other people like a, a guy like Miles Kennedy comes to mind who I've talked to, and everyone knows him for his singing. But if you talk to him, he'll be like, oh, I'm just kind of got thrown into this singing thing. He goes, he, he loves to play guitar. His whole trip is guitar. He taught it. He learned it. He studied it. People just think of him for that voice. So there are yeah. people like it seems like when people that do both, it's kind of some people embrace both and there's some they kind of just fell into the one thing, but they gravitate or more really own the other thing more. Yeah, it it was singing came naturally. I had to work a little bit uh, to learn the guitar stuff, but I was always I was always the youngest guy in the band and I wound up working with really, really good musicians. And so I, I learned a lot as I went along and played different styles of music, uh, lounge music. I played with this older gentleman, uh, High Bromberg, who had this, the cheat, what do they call it? The, um, oh, there's this book that you, that you the, the fake book or something like that, with all, all the popular songs and the standard songs and things like that. Uh, and it would have... Uh, like each page was a page of sheet music with all these old standard film uh, uh, songs. And uh, I couldn't read music, but I, that kind of music for me was, it, 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 it would always kind of tell you where it was going next. At least I, I could, I could hear the progressions going and it's like, okay, they're about to change to the four chord and, and, and then it resolves to the whatever else. And so I, I had a, a, a great time just, you know, following that and trying not to screw it up. And, uh, and then I got with another guy who was a band leader at Troy State University. He, he led the student band and he would take it anywhere from like a three piece combo up to a 20 something piece uh, orchestra. And uh, I only got to play with the orchestra one time. What was that orchestra? Uh, who's the guy that sang Blue Velvet? this is like in the in the 70s anyway uh i i got called to go to atlanta and played with like 20 something piece orchestra and played for him uh and so i basically just any kind of gig i could get i would i would bobby vinton bobby Bobby vinton Bobby I must I must confess in full disclosure, I did not know that. You stumped me, but I Googled it while you were talking. Good, good. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just loved all that. Um, and it was, I, I kind of enjoyed the more, uh, you know, uh, intricate types of songs that, that were less bluesy and, and, and where you, there, you know, some jazz chords and things like that. Um I, I like that just because it was so, you know, it, it, it wasn't what I was hearing on the radio. Uh, I, most of my, my friends were playing in bands. Um, they would be, I got invited to come over to play with this band. They, they were kind of, they were, I would say they were prog and they were doing uh, uh, some Led Zeppelin and I went over and played with them, but it just wasn't, I, I, I that wasn't calling me at the time. I, I later, I, I 
I came to appreciate more of the blues and I played country because I'm, you know, in, in Alabama, there was, you know, it's the home of Hank Williams. And so everybody knew how to play Hank Williams songs. So I, I knew, you know, anytime somebody wanted to play Hank Williams stuff, I'd gladly jump in. You, uh, you had, a, as you kind of touched on, you had a history before Sticks uh, playing in a few different bands and then coming into Sticks in 76 with Crystal Ball. W what was the experience like for you? How well did you know the, that band before you joined them? And what was it like making that first record with them? Were, were you immediately like integrated? Did you feel comfortable out of the gate or did it take a, a little time to kind of acclimate with the other guys at that point? Well, I uh, the the band was called MS Funk, for which stood for Muscle Shoals Funk. Which we, we, when we played in Muscle Shoals, we uh, did a demo there, and the guy said, "You guys sound like some good old Muscle Shoals Funk." And we had uh, we needed to change our name, so we changed it to MS Funk. Um, now, uh, now what what was that question again? <laughs> Well, when you get the when you join Sticks coming out of that band and you oh, join Sticks oh. in '76, what was how well did you know them prior? And was you know going in and making Crystal Ball? Did was it did was it an immediate chemistry or did you feel like you really got your footing in the band after a couple records in a couple years? Well, we uh, were playing at this club called Rush Up on Rush Street in Chicago, and we played. We were an after hours club, so. People who, when they the other clubs closed down, you could come in and catch a, a set or two from our band. And uh, one night, uh, a guy named uh, Jim Vos uh, came back to our us during a break in our dressing room, which was like an attic or whatever it was, and uh, introduced himself and said he was the uh, tour manager for Sticks, and he really liked the band. And uh, within a few months, uh, that band kind of, we kind of gave it up because we were, we were playing these 15 minutes, you know, uh, you know, uh, original tr songs and we were loud and, and uh, the club owners, they wanted people to be able to dance and they wanted people to know what the hell you were playing. So our gigs just, just dropped down to zero. Um, so disco kind of killed that band, but I went back home to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, where I grew up. And uh, at, at the invitation of, a, of a, an old bandmate, he said, man, we got a gig down here at Kegler's Cove, which is a, a little bar inside the bowling alley, Bama Lanes. And he said, we're making $200 a week. It's like $200. My last check that I got from MS Funk, I still have it, was for $25 and something. <laughs> Well, I'm come, you know, I'm, I'm going to move back to my hometown, and uh, so I went there and, and immediately started playing like four or five nights a week uh, with my buddies. And I wrote Crystal Ball when I was there, but uh, I wrote it as a as a, a vocal piece. It was all harmonies through the verses and all that, and it didn't have the section where it goes Crystal Ball. That happened in a car uh, after I joined the band. Um, they said, you need, this thing needs a chorus or something. But uh, I, I got this call while I was down there after I'd been playing for a few months. And it was Jim Vos. And he says, 
look, these guys have got a new record deal with A&M Records. They've got a, a, a single on the radio right now, Lorelei. Uh, and they've got this their first national tour. They've got a new manager um, uh, and they've got a, a, a nationwide tour booked. And one of the guys has just walked away from the thing. It was a guitar player who was also a singer. And so we need you to come to Chicago and audition for it. But I'm thinking, man, I'm making like eight times what I used to make here at Bowling Alley. He said, just, just come, I'll send you a ticket. Just come over here, bring your guitar and bring some, if you have any tapes or things like that, just bring them with you. So I, I went over there and I, we went out, uh, he took me out to Dennis's house and uh, we just sat around and uh, they played some of the songs from uh, Equinox. Well, the first thing uh, I think Dennis put on was Midnight Ride, side two, first song on side two. And I don't know if you know that song, but it's JY. Uh, and it's this rip and rock track. It sounded so good. And I'm thinking, God, I hope I haven't fucked this up. <laughs> I want to be in this band. <laughs> and uh, so we we just sat around and you know, I didn't really play that much. We sang stuff and they listened to some of my songs. And um, so so they said they, they gave me a little stack of albums and a song list. There's 13 songs we want you to learn. Go home, get your stuff, learn these 13 songs, come back. And we're going on the road. And that's what happened. We had one one rehearsal in the afternoon at SIR in Chicago. Wow. So you were just thrown right in. I mean, you didn't really even make a decision. They kind of said, you're coming with us, it sounds like. Yeah. And you know what they did? They, I said, but, you know, I, I hate I hate just, you know, abandoning my my buddies in the band. He said, how much do they make a week? I said, like 200 bucks. He said, we will pay them that plus a little bit more so they can find somebody else. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so wasn't that nice? That's really cool. Leave. And then Beth Nielsen, who uh, lived in Montgomery uh, and has since become a, a major songwriter, she just stepped right in. So they didn't lose anymore. They actually made money on me leaving the band. Yeah, they were getting paid to not play at that point. <laughs> That's a hell of a deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they played. They, got, they, they double dipped that week. And you know, so there's so... There, there's so much I can talk to you about in the in the classic sticks period, but one of the things I I want to ask you about is one particular song that is here. We are 45 years after you wrote it, that it's become a whole uh, like it's everywhere. From like I'm hearing it on sports stadiums and all this, and of course I'm talking about Renegade. Um, yeah. Does it amaze you what has become of that song again, more than 45 years after you recorded it? It seems to have all new life. I mean, is it the Steelers or one of the football teams uses it at a big moment in the stadiums? I mean, it's crazy what's gone on with that song, huh? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a Tomlin will, will call it up uh, between the third and the fourth quarter. And the fans all know that when the, um, They've got a video that they make, which which has some of their their best hits, where they hit an opponent and they the, the, the screen shakes, uh, and you know like where it goes uh, in in the intro, 
Oh, mama, I'm in fear for my life. I'm up the lawn. And then boom, boom, boom. And the, the picture shakes when I do that. And it psychs the opposing teams, the visiting teams out almost every time. It did the first time that they played it. And, Tomlin's, and, and Tomlin and the team have stuck with it. It's going on 20 years now. That's amazing. As a, as a songwriter and as the guy who wrote that song and, of course, sings it, is it is it kind of like like almost strange for you to have something out there that, of course, it was a big song when it initially came out, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I mean, even when I saw you guys play a month or so ago, it's a huge moment in the show. That's got to feel great as the you know as as that being your baby that it's the gift that keeps giving. It, it does. There 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 are a, a, a few songs that were big surprises like that, and. Two of them I wrote the same night. Uh, I wrote Renegade. I had this big reel-to-reel tape recorder, the T-Act, the Tascam, four-channel tape recorder. And so I did, I, 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 I kind of, I, I, I told Alan Parsons when, when I, I worked with him, I recorded a song on his, his uh, new album. And uh, I was such a big fan, and it was Tales of, Mystery and Imagination, I think, is what his album was. But the tales of Edgar Allan Poe. And he had this song called The Raven. And hang on a second. I'm a terrible piano player, but this is how I wrote Renegade. Uh, oh, this this song awesome. went like this. This song went like this. Anyway, it's, it's kind of like that. And so, I, so I, I figured all that out on piano and I just took the same shapes instead of playing those chords. And I just went, uh, I went. Uh, unfortunately, our mic's not picking up his piano very much. Did you hear that? Yeah, it's kind of cutting out. Most of it's kind of cutting out. So we're not really hearing it outside of a little note or two, but. But what you're saying is you wrote Renegade on piano? I did. And I wrote... Wow, uh, I would never have thought that. It's such a kick-ass, like, heavy guitar song. I would never have thought that. Ah, sorry. We got all this on Zoom, so everybody will be able to see it when we post it, but... So now you got a guitar. And yeah, for whatever reason, the music's not coming through, Tommy. It's kind of like cutting oh, off because okay. of the mic or something. We're not hearing it, unfortunately. All right. Well. But I appreciate I, you I, trying. I, uh, there was a song called uh, The Raven. So if you listen to that on Tales of Mystery and Imagination, you'll, you'll, you'll hear those same chords, but they're shuffled around. And so when I worked with Alan, I told I told him about that. I think I told him the first time I met him too. He said, "Well, Paul, Paul McCartney says I stole it from him." And his just if I ever get out of here, gonna right. it all away. It's those are those same three shapes. Uh, it's amazing. It really is. Um, Crash of the Crown, the last record, which is now a couple years old. A uh, great record. It's still represented in your live show. 
Have you and the guys talked about making a, a follow-up? Have you started thinking about new music? I mean, I think it's amazing you guys still make new music because a band like Sticks with the catalog you have, obviously, you know, that's where the bread is buttered, but obviously it's still important for you guys to put out a, a record every few years. Yeah, and and we what the the most recent two albums, uh, there are some songs on there that we've added into our sets. But you know, we don't play the same sets every night uh we, we used to we used to have this set list that we played we kind of for a few years and uh since willie bankovich joined the band you know he's he's kind of pushed us to go to you know don't that's kind of lazy what you're doing and you've got so many great songs uh so let's go and do some album tracks like man in the wilderness and uh uh Miss America and Lorelei and uh, things like that. We have, a, there's a lot of songs that we can choose from. So <clears throat> what we're doing now is uh, a lot of places we're playing a two hour show, but with, with a 20 minute break in the middle. So we'll play an hour uh, and then we'll take a break and then come back and play another hour, all completely different set. Uh, and now what we're doing is we're, we're kind of shuffling in, uh classic songs that we haven't played in a while like pieces of eight uh did do you remember that pieces of eight that the title track sure uh at the end of that title track there was a uh there was a little break and then all of a sudden out of the out of the ether comes this little arpeggiated 12 string thing and it's very kind of uh just dreamy uh, but we never played that live we may have played it one time uh, but now we're playing that and we play that little piece called aku aku uh, we we play that and and we fade it live which is uh it, it's not as easy as it sounds but we we've got it down so it's a uh, and and we we work in songs from the mission but we work in songs from you know, crystal ball all the way through uh, anything that we really like and something that's that's going to kind of show off the expertise of, of all the guys in the band. Uh, they all work together if, you, if you're good at building a set. And, and um, we, we've I think we've kind of mastered the, the, the way to make a really engaging and entertaining uh, arc to the show. Well, one of the songs that you put back in the show in recent years that had a lot of Sticks fans talking was the reintroduction of Mr. Roboto, which when I saw you, you you still did it. What, tell yeah. me about that conversation to bring that one back, because I know that's kind of a was a tension moment in Sticks and all of that. But it works when you play it live. People get into it. I mean, uh, tell me about doing that one again. Well, we never we actually never played it live. It was something we did in the studio. Uh, and it was, uh, I know Dennis was really, uh, a big Dave, David Byrne fan. Uh, and he was really into the techno stuff and we just were never, that was not really our thing, even though we, we played it, um, and years went by and every, every day people would, you know, our crew was going, God, they're, they're wanting to hear Mr. Roboto. And it's like, <laughs> we're, we're, we do, we don't know how to play it. 
and so one day I was looking on uh, Spotify. Uh, I hate to give them any kind of uh, uh, advertisement, but this is where it went. I looked on Spotify. I said, well, "Did any has anyone covered Mr. Roboto? Because uh, I don't I don't remember anybody playing it." So I looked on there, and uh, there were one or two, but one there was this one group called the Proto Men, and so I played that, and it was a rock version of Mr. Roboto, and it kicked ass. And I took it to everybody, and I, I said we can play Mr. Roboto now. Let's play it like this. And so we did our ver- version uh, as a rock song like that. And it, uh, have you heard it? Did you hear it? What? I saw when you, when you guys just did it in Key West. Yeah. Yeah. It kicks ass as, as yeah. a song. Uh, but you didn't, you didn't do that live. You, you must've done it live when Kilroy came out, right? When the, when it was out then you didn't no, do Mr. Roboto on that tour. I don't think so. No, yeah, we did it, but we did it with, to a track. Oh wow! Yeah, because that was a that was a single from that record, if I remember correctly, in a video and all of that. I mean, I know that wasn't your favorite period of sticks, but I, I'm I'm surprised. I would have thought you would have done it in that tour. We did we did it, but it wasn't like a band thing. It wasn't like there was a lot of you know pre recorded stuff. Oh wow! Uh, and. It was, you know, it was such a different arrangement. And we just we never liked doing it because it wasn't us. Uh, uh, it was something Dennis really wanted to do, and 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 so we we went along with it. But uh, you know, we didn't we didn't play it after that. Well, actually, we didn't really play it then. We were just you know playing with a track. Yeah. You know, when you think about that, when you guys had those big productions, whether it was the, that tour or Paradise Theater or all of that, and I'm curious because you talked about earlier you having the issue with your your ears and, and you just got them to work in to- on time and all of that. In the long history that you've been doing this, which is like 50 years coming up, do you do? can you give me your, your, your best Spinal Tap story? You, every band has a Spinal Tap moment something on stage, something in the production, something that happened on the road, couldn't find the stage. Do you guys have a, you have a great personal spinal tap moment? We did. We actually, in, in damn Yankees, we, we did the spinal tap thing for real. We got lost going underneath in a theater somewhere. <laughs> we are, you know, uh, that, yeah, that happened. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the better stories, from there, uh, like that, come from damn Yankees. And there was one we might have told you the story when Jack and I, maybe not. We were playing in Japan, and and Ted was sick uh, with a with a flu, and we were all fine with it. But we were playing these big big shows, and we came up with this thing because Ted doesn't like to stop playing guitar. He likes to just keep playing, and you know, the songs over, and he's still playing. And so he would do this thing, and it just sort of happened. Uh, we said, what if we do this tonight? So he's thra- thrashing around on stage. Now he's down on his back. And what, what we do is uh, there's Michael, Jack, and me. And I forget who did what. Well, I think Michael has Ted's feet. Jack and I have a left shoulder and right shoulder. And we're dragging him off the stage. So this one time, and you know, it's loud. 
And uh, this one time we're doing it and Ted's like, ah, screaming. He's just really, you know, going great, going crazy. And I looked, I looked down at him and he says, you're standing on my hair. <laughs> so, we're about to snatch him bald headed out there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he, he survived. You know, you bring up damn Yankees and I, I, I got to ask you because every single time I talk to you or to Ted or to Jack, it comes up and the fans ask me about it. Is, is there any side of you that would love to revisit that band? I, I think we kind of ran that thing uh, until the wheels fell off of it. Uh, and I, I'd like to just keep it like that. It was it was a fantastic run. Uh, it was it was, you know, it was just wild and woolly. We, we made those two records. The, the first record was was like that was the that was the shit. The second record, it started falling into some some kind of it, 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 it start, just started to lose the, the thing that it had on the first album. So I, I, and I, I think everybody else knew that it was probably time to go back to, you know, your regular job. That being said, I was surprised to hear that there was a third album made that ne that was never released without you, right? That da that Damon Johnson came in instead of you. Yeah, that that was that was a very weird thing. It was like <laughs> I came in the studio and there's Damon, and then the, it was it was every everybody was weird about it. None of us were because we uh, went and talked about it, so. Uh, I was going to go in there and finish this one song uh, called Yes, I Can. And so uh, I just had to do my vocal on it. And uh, so I went in and I sang my vocal. And when I got to the chorus, uh, I sang the lyrics, but everybody else was singing a different lyric. And these were words that I wrote. And I was like, what? What, what just happened? And the producer said, "Well, I, th I thought I thought I liked the, this uh, lyric better." And I'm like, "Who the fuck are you? You 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 you're rewriting my lyrics?" Uh, and you know, it's it, it just it was that it was kind of awkward. I would uh, think. So we we didn't it didn't really have that that uh, esprit de corps like we always had in Damn Yankees before that and it just you know i think we had we had just run that thing as hard as we could and it was time to you know let's let's end on a good note so as far as you're concerned for 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 the fans that always ask me and probably some of you guys about it you're you you feel there's a button on it i mean it's you're done you you think it's best left to rest there's no desire to want to do a show or a, a one-off or anything like that well and, and and michael is a permanent fixture in leonard skinnard and and damn yankees without michael cardelloni you know just wouldn't be right and i you know we do you know 90 to 120 shows a year and you know you have to go home sometime uh you know it, it's like having two two wives or two families um 
so it's just it's, it's just better uh as far as i'm concerned we, we had a we had our day we had we had big records we sold a lot of records we we got a lot of airplay and uh i i just don't know how we would be able to fit all that in you know i i wouldn't want to tell the guys in, in my band sorry guys we can't play any shows for a few months because everybody that's what everybody wants to do everyone wants to be in the we want to play all our shows and sticks and and we've got a we got a great thing going that is it's almost like a rebirth with with the way we're we're going back and retooling the songs to to where they all sound more like we haven't played them 2000 times and <laughs> you know they sound fresh again because we're because we, we're we're putting them up on the racks and going oh wow we really changed this we didn't mean to change it but after playing it 2000 times let's go back to how it sounds on the records because people have listened to those records and they can tell the difference um so so now it, it does sound more like the records and it's we just have a thing you know, there, there. It's a, it's a family thing that's going on, and it's like we're all going back to school uh, every day when we get there to the gig, and uh, you know, it, the excellence is just, it's a great thing to be a part of. Uh, and if people want to hear Damn Yankee songs done live, I'm sure you know Night Ranger does high enough and coming of age. So Jack is out there singing them with Night Ranger. So yeah. maybe you guys share a bill. You jump up. You get half of. Uh, Damn Yankees reunion or something. Who knows? Yeah. Anytime we played with Night Ranger, I've always gotten up and, and sung that with them. Yeah. So do you have any desire to do a solo album again at any point? I think you you got four or five out there in your catalog. Would you like to do that again? It's been about 10 years, I think, since the last one. Um, yeah, I've got a bunch of songs, but I, I think I'm going to bring them in and see if we can make them stick songs. Uh Cause there's just sticks plays so much, you know, when it comes, uh, there, there's just not time to dedicate to doing another project. Uh, if, if I, if I didn't like playing with sticks, you know, if, if, if it was like, we need to get away from each other, uh, then there would be this, this time to do something like that. But now, uh, we, we it's, it's hard for us to make sure we can take a, a long enough break. So we can shake off the last, you know, 30 or 40 shows. So we've, we've got a pretty good groove going on right now. Everybody's comfortable with their families are comfortable with it. Uh, and, you know, we're, there comes a time when we're home where it's all of a sudden just like, when are you guys going back out? <laughs> Well, I'm looking at you now, and you're you're obviously in uh, what is your home studio or something because I'm seeing you on Zoom, and you got guitars and a piano back there. Are you the yeah. type of guy that's always in there, even when you're home, tinkering away, writing, noodling? Or are you that kind of guy, always writing, yeah. always working? What what well what I what happens is uh, when you're a songwriter, a lot of times you just something will just start playing in your head and you'll go, what, what is that? And you realize that's, that's, you know, something new, or if you're just kind of humming along, you know, uh, a lot of times just making up goofy songs to sing to our dogs and cat. Uh, and it was like, wait a minute, that's, that's a melody. So we, anytime there's something like that, I'll go to my iPhone and 
and just if I've got a guitar, I'll play it along, play along with it. So I'll remember it because otherwise, you know, it was just this little fleeting idea that they can just vaporize. Uh, and there was, there's a song on the um, on Crash of the Crown called Sound the Alarm that I wrote in my hotel room. Didn't didn't mean to write it. I just picked up. I said, let's let me tune it, the guitar to an open E. And because uh, it's fun to do that sometimes. I don't know if I've got one. That's in, see, I'm not going to do it because you can't hear it. Um, yeah, it doesn't come through. I, I tuned it to an open E. And uh, and I said, came up with this little progression and I heard this melody in my head and I just came out with words. And so that that's a song that's um, that we play all the time now. Uh, we did yeah. we did a great recording of it. And so there's so that sort of thing happens all the time. Uh, and then Will Will has song ideas. Ricky's got song ideas. Lawrence has ideas. Uh, and JY jumps in there, and uh, so it's it's very easy to write really interesting and fun new sticks material. And uh, uh, Universal is like, whenever you guys are ready, we'll we'll put it out. You know, so uh, and, and you know, and we our, we recoup, so we're not putting the record company. They're they're not going to. We're not. This isn't worth it for us. Um, so so we have that that we can do and it's you know it's like it never grows old mm. you know when, when you have new songs that you can filter in like uh there's a song on uh crash of the crown called to those and uh it's it's pretty progressive and uh a little complicated to play and sing but we're like fuck it let's learn it you know let's so we we have these little, um, uh, what do they call them? Uh, what do they call them? It's a positive grid spark, spark amps. These little amps that have Bluetooth on them. So we can practice in there. We can, we can play tapes through there, or, uh, you know, recordings through there. So each one of us has one in the dressing room. And so we can just get our, in a very small space, you know, about like this space right here, we can all get in there and we can practice and we can either learn new songs or we can uh, we can start working on writing new songs. And uh, then we'll get obsessed and we're going like, fuck it, we're going to play it tonight. <laughs> and, and so uh, so a lot of times, you know, we don't sound like a band who's played these songs a thousand times because we're still taking risks to play these new songs that we're OK. This is like. We've been playing it backstage. Now we're going to play it for you live. So, uh, you know, it's so fun to be in sticks and our fans, you know, because it's the same. We still write in the same style as the records that were back in the 70s. And, and so you, you've put all those songs together and, and it all makes sense. And, you know, we get to the choruses, you know, may, they may not know the chorus on the first round. By the time you get to the second round, I look out there and people are singing the choruses. So uh, it's just it's amazing that that is still this much fun and, and exciting and challenging at, at this point. Well, well, I, I still feel like I'm 40 years old because this is what I was doing then. 
Well, well, you still look like you're 40 years old and you still sound yeah. like you're 40 years old, which is remarkable. But the, the reality is that in September, you are going to be 70 years old and you are going to join. And so, so, Tommy, just so you know, I have this thing that I call on my show every day that with my audience that I call the freaks. And this is in a positive sense, the freaks in a positive <laughs> sense, meaning artists, singers that are 70 or older that can still sing remarkably well. Now, in the, in that group right now are people like Glenn Hughes and Sammy Hagar and Steven Tyler. And I don't know if Robin Zander's 70, so I don't know if I could put him there yet, but he's close. But you are in September, unless you completely hit the wall in the next few months and start croaking on stage when you try to sing, which I know is not going to happen. You will join the, the, the world of the freaks in the best of ways. All that being said, how long do you envision sticks continuing? I mean, the band's more than 50 years into its career. Is it just like open-ended? Have you guys talked about ending at some point or how you want to end? Or is it just, there's no retirement talk. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm afraid there's probably going to come a, a day where somebody's going to die on stage. <laughs> and if that happens, if it's me, sorry about that. Sorry to put you through that. But uh, God forbid. It, would not, it would not be it. There are worse ways to go. Uh, well, you go doing what you love, but yeah, but we yeah. don't want that. So no, but you guys, no, there's been no discussion fine. about that. You guys just are plowing ahead and making new music and everybody's happy and you, there's no no talk of farewell tours or anything like that. Well, the only talk about farewell tours is how funny it is, and yes. fans will well they'll they will admit that they're not they just call it that, and then right. people are, well, we got to go see them, and then right. you know a few months go by, and then shows go on sale again, uh, and, and that it's it's kind of a gimmick, and it's you you know. When people are saying they're, you know, Motley Crue did a con. You wrote songs for Motley Crue. Motley Crue did a contract, and they're on tour right now. So you, you know, <laughs> it's it's just like yeah, I don't think I anyone's ever held to it. This is the, if you like what you're doing, you why? What are you gonna? You know, your your family uh, is used to you uh, being gone, so they 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 have their own separate you know, uh, existence when you're gone. And so after you're there for a while, they're like, you know, <laughs> I got stuff to do, you know, and, and I, uh, you know, Jeannie, Jeannie's always helping me. Uh, I'm not, I'm not the, I, 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 I have a hard time staying focused while I'm driving. So I'll get lost and, uh, you know, I have to call her and go, I, I don't know where I'm at, you know, uh, I know it's sad, but, um, you know, I don't drive that much uh, most of the year. I'm in a van or in a limo or a, uh, or an Uber, you know, bus. Um, so, you know, I'm, not, I, I'm really useful at uh, doing what I do. And I have a few things around here that I do that I'm useful for, you know, breaking down the cardboard boxes, taking out the trash, <laughs> it's feed, feed the pets in the morning or, or whenever. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I'm a kind of uh, single cell organism almost. I, I, 
this this is what I do. And um, she loves Jeannie loves me, I think. Last I checked, checked. And uh, so she's used to to this life. And uh, it's it's been really good to us. And we, we have a, a great organization. I don't know if you've ever dealt with them, but it's just it's just amazing that to a man and woman. Uh, every single person is is such a total pro and easy to work with and driven to to make it better and um, you know everybody likes to rehearse. We we have even the crew they're go, going and dumping the trucks uh, in Chicago uh, when we're there and they're going to go they're going to have tech day go through and retube all the amps and and just take everything apart and and blow it out clean it out. Uh, and so next time we start, it's like we're in brand new gear, but they love that. And, uh, you know, so it's this thing that, that we do. I, I can't imagine ever quitting it. Um, it, it quit it and go do what, you know, you can only sit on the beach for so long. Uh, and there was a time down uh, a couple of years ago when Jose Feliciano uh, had the 50th anniversary of Feliz Navidad. Mm-hmm. He had an idea. I'm going to get people from other, uh, you know, types of music to sing a, a verse or a half a verse of Feliz Navidad. So uh, Lawrence and I got to do that. And so in the middle of summer, I have a picture of me. I had a Santa hat on and I had to get out of the house because I was driving everybody crazy uh, <laughs> singing into my phone. So I went outside and out by the, you know, by the beach sweating with that hat on singing police navidad <laughs> just to get a few frames in the in the thing so you know there's there's always something to do well you got a lot to do because i'm looking at the band's website right now and uh which is sticksworld.com and you are busy coming up soon my friend you uh you start up in just a few days again in peoria illinois and the dates run through March and then April. And then in August, you're out in Sturgis, the Buffalo chip. I mean, there's just a ton of shows here. Uh, so yeah. basic, I'm seeing dates running pretty much through November right now. So the bottom line is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not going out and doing the, um, usually you guys go out with REO or a big package shed thing. These are pretty much all your own shows, right? This summer? Yeah. These are ones where we can go out and play the, uh, the a two a two set show, and and really uh, you know have a have a lot bigger palette of music. Um, so so yeah, we do that, and then every every so often we like to go out and play uh, the the state fairs and county fairs. So people who don't live in in the the big big uh, you know uh, cities. Uh, who would have to go to a, an arena or, or a theater and pay a pretty hefty ticket price. If they're, if they're, you know, a young interested person, they can come to a fair and get in a lot cheaper and still see the band on a big stage. And that's, that's a lot of people's first time uh, experience seeing sticks. And it's, that's served us really well. Yeah, it's a great way to build audience because you will pick off people in settings like that that aren't necessarily just there to see you and like, oh, wow, whether they're younger people or older people hadn't seen the band in a while. And the other thing that jumps out at me looking at your touring 
is that you're going to be on uh, Joe Bonamassa's cruise, huh? Which is keep the blues alive. So you guys are going to have to get a little extra bluesy on that, I bet. That'd be, that'll be great. I love it. Do you know Joe? I know Joe, I know Joe very well. He's a great guy and he's a great music fan. Do you know him personally? I don't know him personally, but I have, have the greatest respect for him because I watched him just push his way through the door and say, you know, it's always, you know, where we'd be somewhere there. Here's a Joe Bonamassa CD for you to listen to. And and he was constantly uh, just promoting himself like that. And and he he built that almost single handedly. You got to respect that. And much like you, he started extraordinarily young. He had that band Bloodline when he was like 14, 15 that he did with, it was all, it was all, I don't know if you know about that. It was all, it was like the sons, it was the sons of all famous people like Robbie Robertson's kid or all these famous people's kids band. But he was Mm. the only guy who was, he was the ringer. He was not a famous person's kid. He was the only unknown in that band. And that's where he started. He was literally like 15 as the gunslinger on that record. Uh, well, much even there's more respect. Yeah, no, he, he, he did an amazing job with his career. All right, last thing, and I'll let you go. This makes me nuts. I scream and rant about it all the time. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Does it bother you that Sticks up to this point has been ignored for this like it bothers me and your fans or are you guys like whatever about it? Your thoughts? Well, I've always said I would like to be inducted posthumously oh, because stop. I've been. Well, I if you've been you've been to one of those things, right? If they're long, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're long, and I haven't been since uh, we, we did a thing with the uh, uh, Port Authority Police Department uh, after nine eleven. I mean, like right after 9-11 and uh not long after that tom petty and skinner uh were getting uh inducted and so we we said let's get a couple of our friends from you know there were these two gigantic police officers and we call them the twin towers let's get them tickets and then invite them to come with us and and go to that concert and that was great because we we knew i i didn't i met uh uh, Tom Petty's original bass player. He was there and he was a big Sticks fan. And so I met him, ran into him in the men's room and he was like, you know, so we introduced ourselves there and and, uh, and all the Skinner people were there and it was just, a, it, that was a great thing at a small venue. Uh, but then it started, they started blowing it up into the uh, arenas and, and that sort of thing. And so, and they were charging people, if you wanted to bring your family, they'd be like, five thousand dollar tickets to go yeah do that and, uh i i would I you just love don't to... want to deal with all the drama involved in going and having to be there and who gets to go or not so you're like do it when i'm done <laughs> yeah let me yes i, I love the way rush rush uh handled their induction but uh it was it was great to see tom petty and skinner get that and uh, there have been a couple of times where fans uh, started up a petition and got quite, I don't know how many names they got and they would submit it. But recently, uh, Jan Winter 
and he put this, I don't know if it was on rollingstone.com. Someone asked him about sticks. He said, no one's ever brought up sticks ever. I'm thinking, you know, that's not true. You've talked to JY. You've, t- you know, he he gave John, JY the, the indication that he would consider it. And so this, it's a, I, I, I've lost my respect for, for him and, uh, in that matter, just to just to to block us out. So I, I'm going back to uh, let's do it posthumously. Oh well, I you you can I I don't want that to happen. You guys should have been in a long time ago. There's a clear bias against for whatever reason bands like you guys, Foreigner, who I've brought up a million times, a million huge oh, songs. Foreigner. Boston, Meatloaf, you go on and on and on. Records that have sold millions, huge, huge things, and they've just been snubbed. I thought maybe there's a chance when they finally put Journey in, 20 years too late, but finally Journey not long ago. So maybe that door's starting to open for that era of 70s-based rock bands, but it's mind-boggling the bands that have been snubbed, and you guys are very much at the top of that list as far as being snubbed. And I know often the fans like myself get more worked up about it than the artists themselves. And I just didn't know where you landed on it. Doesn't sound like it keeps you up at night and it shouldn't obviously. No, I just, I just, uh, I, it's that just kind of blew my mind when he made that statement. And so that, yeah. that's how he feels. It's like, okay, I get it. You're, you're barring the door. So, uh, you know, Go do it. Well, it's your door. Yeah, exactly. It's their private club and you don't need their validation, yeah. but what's right is right. And uh, I'm going to rant and rave about it until it gets fixed. I'm a voter. Look, I got my ballot right here. Even though I, I rant and rave, they've actually made me a voter. So I'm going to write in sticks, Tommy. I'm going to write. It's going to be a write in vote for me this year. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate they don't it. offer write in votes, but I'm going to write it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they listen to you, but, but you know, it's not if if it never happens i've there's there's still so much fun to be had out of what we're doing uh that that it's going to be happiness till death do us part yeah well listen man um i appreciate all the time i appreciate you reaching out and wanting to do this and uh continued success everybody go to sticksworld.com and see the dates. There's a ton of them. They start up again in just a few days, as I mentioned, uh, in Peoria on Thursday. And oh. then you, they just go from there. Everything's on the website. Well, cool. So, Tommy, uh, thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks to Tommy Shaw. As I mentioned, we're going to give you an extra long edition this week because I've had so many guests backing up on the radio show. So we're going to give you another interview. And it's with Tim Bogart about the film he wrote and directed about his dad, Neil Bogart, and Casablanca Records. That film is in theaters now called Spinning Gold. Here's that conversation. Tim, nice to talk to you. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Very nice to talk to you. You too. I really enjoyed the film. I've had a chance to see it already, and uh, congratulations. I'm sure this was very much uh, a labor of love for you and something that I, I would imagine, knowing how movies work, probably took a long time to get together. <laughs> yes, yeah, they, they all do. I think this one took perhaps a little longer. 
What are the, when did you first start thinking about doing a film about your dad and his record label, Tim? When did the idea first hit you? You know, the idea, I think, came early. I, I was young when he passed away. I, I was 12. Um, but, but he was such a larger-than-life character, and the artists were so important and consequential. I think a lot of people saw uh, that that was a story that, that should be told. But it took years. You know, uh, music biopics, I think, tend to be something um, that everyone thinks always work, and, and it kind of makes sense. But this was not uh, about Donna Summer. This was not about Parlor. It was not about Kiss. It was about this guy that nobody knew. So I think it was deceivingly challenging. Um, but it was 1999 when I finally uh, said, okay, I'm actually going to make it um, and set it up, thinking I was going to make it pretty soon. And, and really hasn't been a day since that I was working on it. So it's, it's been a good 24 years. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> Tim, you met, I was going to ask you that, how old you were when your dad passed away. So you said you were 12? 12, yeah. Do you have, do you have memories of him beyond photos and videos? I mean, do you, did, did you have any knowledge uh, or recollections even as a kid that you, what your dad did and that he had this record label and that he had these artists and the music? Was there any of that that was kind of impacted on you or were you too young? No, all of it was, you know, um, I don't, I, I don't really have memories of the Buddha records years, uh, or cameo parkway. I wasn't alive for, but, um, Casablanca was kind of the after school playground. You know, I would go to school and, um, go right to the Casablanca offices. So, you know, kiss and Donna and parliament, I mean, this really was my family. And so, you know, growing up, um, in those offices, uh, we saw it all and experienced it all. So was absolutely, um, immersed in how special it was, I just at that age had no idea how um, dangerous uh, the circumstances were and, and how close Casablanca lived to cataclysm almost on a daily basis. Your background, Tim, is uh, is obviously in directing and writing. Prior to this film, I know it sounds like it's been, again, you just said, took over 20 years to get together, but have you worked on other things? Have you... Did, what? Uh, did you, as you got older, did you take an immediate interest in film? Because if I'm not mistaken, um, uh, Casablanca, when it came out, was a record label. But later on in its history, it actually became subtitled Casablanca Records and Filmworks, if I'm not mistaken. So I think they did produce some movies at some point. Um, I'm just wondering how you ended up getting into the movie end of it. Sure. Well, yeah, they definitely did. I mean, they started um, doing the soundtrack to The Deep. Um, before they became producers themselves. And, of course, Donna um, ha had a uh, great song on that on that film, and Giorgio Moroda, uh, it was his first uh, score. Uh, and, then they, and then they did um, Midnight Express, which was a pretty serious and, and important film. Uh, and then they sort of moved <laughs> into a little bit more fun with Thank God It's Friday and, and, and ultimately Flashdance and some, and some other pictures. Um, so growing up, um, I was very much immersed in, in the film side of it, but I think more than anything, um, Casablanca's artist and my father's vision was very much a visual story uh, for all music. I think he saw that in a, in a way that was quite a bit before its time. So I was always fascinated um, by visual storytelling. Um, and I don't know why I didn't kind of run towards music. My, my younger brothers did. Um, I, I wanted to tell stories. And so um, I started a career Similar to my father's path in terms of, of focusing on independent versus sort of you know more traditional studio work, um, and it, it's a crazy topsy turvy career to be in. And so I would find myself uh, doing a lot of producing, running around the world, producing television shows, 
Um, I did produce a whole bunch of movies, um, primarily in independent space. Um, and along the way was always sort of pushing forward my, my ultimate goal, which was to direct and, and wasn't necessarily this film. In fact, I wasn't planning to direct this film at the beginning. I thought maybe that was too much and too close to be the writer, producer, and the director of it. Um, but, uh, you know, twists and turns along life just kept delaying kind of what I, what I really um, thought I should be doing and, and finally embraced this one. And um, so this is the, the first, you know, really big film that I've done. I've done, you know, a number of smaller things along the way. Uh, but I have been an active producer for many, many years, which was uh, very important uh, along the path of getting this one made. Given that you were just 12 when your dad passed away and that you you have some memories of the time, but obviously you to make a movie like this, you would need to have way more uh, material and content and firsthand accounts of what went on. So in order to do that for this movie, did you lean on a lot of people and talk to a lot of people that worked for your dad and worked for the company? I imagine those people that are still alive would have been a great resource to find out, uh, you know, how this all went down. Everyone, and not just the ones who worked with him or for him, um, other executives who kind of were along the road, you know, developing their careers at the same time. And I, I think in a testament to how much my father meant to people, um, so many people opened themselves up uh, and spent a tremendous amount of time. I mean, you know, from Clive Davis to George Clinton, from, you know, Donna before she passed uh, to Jean, Paul, Peter and Ace, um, uh, everybody had been just remarkably supportive. And, and to try to make a movie about something that took place, you know, decades ago, you, you are challenged with what's real memory, what's perceived memory, who has the best memory. Uh, George Clinton, I will tell you, has an encyclopedic memory. It's extraordinary. He could tell you the set list at any particular show. Um, so there, there, was, there was great um, resource from specifics to the overall feeling of it all. But ultimately, like, like an investigative reporter, I would triangulate the stories and ask enough different people who are around the same events to try to get to the true kernel of truth in the center of it all. Um, but perception is sometimes reality. And, and that was a, a tough challenge, but I had amazing support from just about everyone. Did your dad keep any sort of notes or any sort of journal? So interestingly, we didn't think so. Um, and I spent years doing all these interviews and I kept stumbling with his early years, kind of before he joined um, Cameo Records. And um, there was very few people who knew him then and who could provide any insight of what it was like as this poor kid in the Brooklyn projects um, struggling to, to be something else. And um, my stepmom, Joyce, who's played by Lindsay Fonseca in the movie, who was Kiss's manager and Donna's manager, um, was cleaning out her garage one day and happened upon these handwritten notes from my father. When he first learned he had cancer and thought he wasn't going to make it, he started writing his life story. Um, he only got up to Cameo Parkway, and then it went into remission and thought he was going to be fine. And those uh, letters were lost uh, to history for decades, um, up until the odd moment when I was really kind of struggling with that period of time and suddenly discovered it. So it was this weird message in the bottle from him. So I did really get his voice. Um, his his essence of, of who that young guy was struggling to become the guy ultimately I knew. Yeah, and, and for people that don't know, Spinning Gold, which again is out on uh, a week from tomorrow, and, and again, it's a biopic on Casablanca Records and its founder, Neil Bogart, who was very much a larger-than-life uh, character. 
uh, by every account, even before this movie. I mean, the, the stories when you talk to people who knew him and knew about Casablanca were were everywhere. Um, but did you ever uh, give any thought, Tim, instead of going the biopic route to doing it as a documentary? Uh, yes, uh, we thought about doing it in so many different uh, mediums. Um, uh, live stage Broadway show was something that we had been exploring for many, many years. In fact, we're actually finally going to do that next year. Um, we thought about uh, event miniseries. We thought about documentary. Um, but ultimately, I thought it, it was having nothing to do with the fact that he happened to also be my father. I just thought it was an extraordinary story about perseverance and about the importance of dreaming and um, supporting other people's dreams that I thought it had a universality to it um, and, and an excitement to it that was best suited to, to be a film. And so, well, I certainly did play with uh, a bunch of other um, possibilities. I, I, making a film was always um, kind of the compass for me. Now, you know that, and I am, I am a huge, huge fan of documentaries. So I would love one day if there was a doc as well, but you know, but, but I am fully aware as well that a biopic is going to be different than a, a documentary and that when you get into the Hollywood machine that you may have to change some things or alter some things or embellish some things to make the story go. And I mean, even in a movie as big as Bohemian Rhapsody, all the Queen fans pointed out timeline things and what have you. Um, did you have any sort of, because there are some things in the film uh, as a hardcore kiss fan. And I, I know, you know, that the kiss Shout fans are insane. Shout it out loud being played at the <laughs> party That's when right. that well, was not on a record for four more no. records, that That's kind right. of stuff jumps out. And also the makeup design, which even in the earliest trailers, people were like, they must not have been able to clear the makeup. So what See, can you that, say about that, that kind of stuff? Well, I think those are, it's actually two different things. I'll start with the makeup first, which is, which is such an interesting thing because, you know, Gene was actually going to produce the film with me for, for many years and, and worked extensively with me. And then ultimately, you know, they were going back on tour and, and, and got quite busy. Um, so he couldn't continue on as a producer. But when we were starting to put together the design of the film, Gene and Paul spent hours talking to our costume designers, talking to our makeup designers, talking to our hair people, talking to the, the prop people to make sure we had the guitars right. But ultimately, one of the things they wanted to tell and I wanted to tell, which, I, which was something I did for all the artists, I wanted to show what it was like when these artists were actually becoming those artists. And the truth is, and I, and I knew this would be an issue with, with, with KISS fans and, and Man, respect, respect them all for understanding how incredibly consequential this band has been for 50 years. But at the beginning, I remember Gene saying to our, our makeup people, their makeup, their, their grease paint was so awful, they could never replicate the look. And they would take the stage and within five seconds, it would be melting down their faces. And part of what he wanted and Paul wanted, and, and I embraced it, was to show this hardest working band in show business and to show how they were trying to discover themselves. I mean, we were making the movie really about Chaim Witz and Stanley Eyes and the guys who became Gene Simmons and, and Paul Stanley and became Peter Chris and, and Ace. Um, and so it, Gene actually shared with me early photos of when they were trying to figure out, should the star be here or the star be there? So in 1973 into 74, they were still figuring it out. And that was something that um, was important to them to show um, and know that it, it didn't reach perfection until they really broke. Um, and that's when it became the iconic stuff we remember today. So it was actually, uh, per them, this was the accurate way to go, even though 
you know, the, the, the hardcore fans, I, I think, you know, question, well, why, why is the makeup different? Well, because they hadn't figured it out yet. They hadn't trademarked it yet completely. Um, and different shows tend to look different because they were putting it on themselves and it was terribly cheap grease paint. So that was sort of the, the makeup and, and had to do with the costumes and the logo, of course. But the, um, the shout out loud thing was quite different. Uh, early on, um, to me, the compass of the film was best told if it felt like it was being told by Neil Bogart, my dad, um, you know, a, a guy who was trying to wrestle with the sum of his life and the events of his life and what he achieved in his life. Um, and so he was, he's telling the story as a narrator to us and he's remembering these moments in the way that he wanted to present them to us. And so um, shout out loud is, is one of the few songs that come out of the timeline in the whole film. But when my father, I remember once talking to me when I was really young um, about what it was like at that party. I remember him talking about the songs and listing the songs. And in his mind, he listed out Shout It All Out, which, of course, was, was not possible. But that was his memory of it. And, and the character of Neil says at the beginning that memories are tough uh, and perception is, is tough. And so that was a leap that we made, uh, right or wrong, to get the essence of what this character remembered about um, who this band was when they took that stage, even though nobody appreciated them, Warner Brothers Records hated them. Um, but my father saw the vision of these guys and knew what they could be. But that was the vision he remembered. He remembered these anthemic songs at this extraordinary party that nobody understood but himself. Did that in the film when, so for, for the, and I understand when we're doing this, the audience, uh, people listening, haven't had a chance to see the movie yet, but they will a week from tomorrow. There's a scene where your dad launches Casablanca and everybody knows that yeah. Kiss was his first signing and yeah. it's covered in the movie that Warner Brothers uh, hated the band and that ended up uh, them having to dissolve that relationship and had your dad had to figure out where he's going for distribution and all that. But there's a scene in the film where, your dad launches Casablanca and Kiss being the first band signed to it. They're performing in this ballroom, this elaborate party. And the, when Kiss plays, they set off the smoke alarms, the fire alarms, and it ends in a horrible situation where like everybody's drenched in water, have to evacuate the room. Did that really happen? Or was that embellished for the movie? Uh, the amount of water and then the way that was played out was embellished a little bit, but yet they kind of forgot um, they forgot the, 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 the fire alarms um, and they brought it all, the, it, you know, the way it was always described to me, even Gene described it to me, it was a kiss concert in a bar mitzvah venue. I mean, it was the century Plaza ballroom to, to launch Casablanca and kiss as the first act was the, the act that performed that night. And they pulled out all the stops with the noise and the flash pots and it did set off the sprinklers. Um, so it was a it was a crazy misfire sonically, visually. Warner Brothers hated everything about it, but even the party itself went so rapidly off the rails. Um, and as legend says, and, and it was in fact true, Warner Brothers had started with a three million dollar advance to my father for 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 the distribution rights, and my father spent four million of the three million before they opened the doors and was bankrupt on the eve of that party. And when Warner Brothers said, and we're going to bleed Casablanca by pulling all support to this terrible band that we don't understand, um, Casablanca was on the verge of collapse from the start. I mean, there's scenes in the film where your dad literally is going to Vegas and literally, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was, this was always kind of alluded to 
in interviews with Kiss over the years and decades about that that the stuff that went on at Casablanca, people wouldn't have believed. But you you lay some of it out. I mean, the, your dad had actually go to Vegas and actually borrowed money from the mob to keep things afloat. I mean, it's incredible. Well, I mean, to well, well he, it, technically he wasn't supposed to be borrowing it. it. It's absolutely true. He went up to Vegas. And, you know, when you go to Vegas and you've got a relationship, you can get a pretty big line of credit. But you're supposed to gamble it at the casino. You're not supposed to leave town with it. And that's what he did. He took these lines out and took the cash home to make payroll. Um, it, it, it was that dire. And he lived that that far out of the edge for sure. You know, um, two other quick things on Kiss. And I want to move on to a few other things. So. There's a, a reference early on when they go for, to first see Kiss at a proper concert, and uh, you don't really see the person, but there's a reference to Steven Tyler because they say something like, I guess they were on tour with Aerosmith, and yeah. we always know there was a bit of a rivalry there, but that Aerosmith, I guess, kind of booted him off, and I think it's your dad starting, you know, giving shit to Steven Tyler. I, I thought yeah. that was a pretty funny thing. Where, where was, did you pick, where was, did you get yeah. that from? Where no, that, Did the guys tell you about that, or... Well, anybody inside the camp um, of Casablanca, of which there were many that, that helped contribute, that was that was pretty well known. You know, uh, reality was that they were on tour with, with Aerosmith and Tyler, but they were getting such an outrageously positive reaction from the fans that um, they got upset and and basically said, you can keep going, but you're going to, you're going to strip down your sound package. You're going to strip down your light package and get rid of all these flash pots because they were genuinely concerned that they were upstaging a little bit. And so um, the the challenge was, if you want to stay on tour with us, you are absolutely going to stop all this stuff that makes you, you um, and a testament to to my dad's belief. And then he said, Nope, you guys are ready to headline. Yeah, it's that. So, so the other thing, the other thing in here that that came to mind is that there's a scene in the film with the uh, creation of the song Beth, which of course was a huge hit for Kiss, and it's a scene where Peter Chris is playing guitar. Which, again, I, I understand this is a biopic and not a documentary, but I don't even know if Peter plays guitar. But he's in there and kind of strumming it, and the, you know, it's it's put out like okay, that's going to be a single when in fact, in reality, it was a B side that somebody turned over. So I know those things are all going to be a little bit changed for the purposes of the movie, but the biggest well, thing that's, well, go ahead. If, if no, you don't no, think. I was just to say, interestingly, when, when, when um, Gibson decided to show up um, to, to sponsor them and, and to give Paul guitars early on, um, uh, Larry Harris, who was played by James Woke in the film as my uncle, um, was there at the time. And, um, you know, they, they had all these great guitars for everybody else. And Peter was there and they're like, here, they gave him an acoustic. They, they did. So, and that was the acoustic um, that, that he used. So we were play, paying uh, homage to, to that uh, and to Peter's um, wanting us to know that, you know, he, he was given that acoustic guitar um, and that, um, and that he did write the song and how important that song was. Ultimately, um, that song was absolutely kept off of a couple albums because my father was so um, hurt and insulted by the fact that they changed the name to Beth, which was my mom. Well, here's the thing. Well, here's the thing, Tim, Tim, this is where I want to jump in because as a kiss fan, 
That was one of the big, and it's a storyline in the movie, but that was one of the biggest revelations in the movie to me that I had never heard before. Okay, so the story that Gene has always told was that the song was originally going to be called Beck, B-E-C-K, and that he said that's a stupid title to Peter, and he said, you know, you should. people are going to think you're singing about Jeff Beck, change it to Beth. What the for the first time ever in the film, which leads to a confrontation, that was perceived as a shot towards to Neil, who was involved with their manager at the time about your mom. I mean, clear that up for me because I had never heard that Beth came from essentially being named after your mom. That's what the film says. Well, no, so originally it was named after um, uh, you know Peter's wife. Um, and then they changed it, but it was Lydia, which wasn't a very, it didn't, you know, kind of trip off the tongue. And then it was changed to be um, uh, Beck for a minute. And Gene, that is true. He, he did not like that. But at that moment, um, they were so pissed that my father had established this relationship with their manager. Um, and I think we portray that, uh, you know, hopefully pretty honestly in the, in the film. Uh, Joyce, who really was their manager, went on to be. Donna Summers' manager was incredibly consequential to, to Kiss's early career. She was absolute equal partners with Bill O'Coyne. Um, and they were really pissed at and had great questions about whether um, their manager was now compromised in terms of, you know, who, whose side was she on? Um, so there was this big kind of moment of, they, were they going to leave the label? Did they trust their manager? Um, and the other thing that's really important about that song is, um, and this was always important to Peter uh, to, to tell, Gene and Paul hated the song. They hated everything about the song. They right. thought it had nothing to do with the Kiss sound. They thought it, it didn't make sense. It didn't belong on the album. They thought it was a joke. They didn't even go to the recording of it. Um, and then my dad put in all these strings, which I thought made it even stupider and sillier. So they, they had a thing against the whole song. And as the final kind of coup de gras from, from Gene decided, you should name it Beth. <laughs> to piss off Neil. Um, and, and that's what I was capturing. So it was a combination of, you know, every story that Gene ever told me, but every story that Peter Chris has always wanted to, to share about the fact that this was not a song that was embraced by them all. And so the fact that my father was keeping it off the albums because he was hurt personally, didn't really bother uh, Gene and Paul because they didn't want the song to be part of, of what Kiss was uh, as a presentation. And then of course, history w- w- would prove this how important that song ultimately was. But for people that don't realize you're, which is also portrayed in the film is your dad at a certain point in the history of Casablanca was basically living a double life. He was having an affair with the man, the co-manager of kiss while still being married to your mom and coming home to you and the kids. And that whole dynamic with them saying, Hey, why don't you call it Beth was a shot at him about your mom, right? Absolutely. And um, you know, as, as the son, that's an interesting story to tell about your father's affair. Um, but I thought it made him incredibly human. And it was it, the truth is he fell madly in love with this, this person who I don't think there was a Casablanca Records uh, without Joyce uh, Biowitz, who would become Joyce Bogart. There, was, there wouldn't have been a Donna Summer. There wouldn't have been the Village People. I don't think there would have been Kiss without this incredibly talented, groundbreaking 26-year-old girl from Queens who just had this vision, and he fell madly in love with her, but he was still madly in love with my mother. 
Um, and he really did, in a very messy way, try to maintain this double life where he could have it all. I think that was part of part of my father's drive was to have it all. And ultimately, life doesn't work out that way. But I thought that was an interesting, messy, very human story to tell. Um, I always, you know, understood that that might make people maybe, you know, judge him. And, and if they do, that that's fair. That's a fair judgment. You know, that's something that he did. It's not just that he had the affair. He maintained it for years. Yeah, I mean, look, this is the 70s. It's uh, it's absolutely the height of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and that is all very much in this film. And, you know, it's uh, – one one other thing, though, there on uh, that also – now, Donna Summer, which was a huge artist as well for Casablanca, she – again, I'm I'm – this is a rock talk show, and obviously I'm a huge Kiss fan and so much of my audience is, so that's where I'm going with a lot of – my discussion with you, but Casablanca was way more than just Kiss. And obviously uh, Donna Summer was a, a, another major artist there in the disco world. But what I thought was real interesting, Tim, and maybe you can uh, give some clarity on this. So the film makes the case that the breakthrough record that saved Casablanca and put it on the map was Donna Summer's Love to Love You Baby history and maybe your film's right and sets the record right and 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 or not but history has always said that it was kiss alive and the live version of rock and roll all night and the success of kiss alive which saved the label and then came donna summer but your film kind of reverses it that donna summer saved the label and then later kiss finally got out of the gate can you talk about that yeah it was donna summer uh, it, it just, it just absolutely was. Um, so you have to remember they released love to love you initially as a three and a half minute song and it tanked. Nobody got it. You know, it wasn't R and B. It wasn't soul. Disco hadn't come across the, the ocean yet. Nobody knew who this artist was. So they put out this song that my father thought had an extraordinary sound with this unbelievable singular voice in, in Donna, uh, but nobody got it. And, and, and that song was just forgotten about as, okay, that didn't work. And true, true story. And, and I know this because I was there. I shouldn't have been. Again, this is talking about the 70s. But there was a crazy end of the world party thrown at our house where all the executives came and um, everybody knew that they were out of money. Um, it really was the end of the road. Nothing had worked. And my dad had this crazy, gigantic sound system in, in the main living room. And there was always boxes of, of singles. And at parties, people would just go and, and put, put a record on, put a record on. And at this party, someone put on that original three and a half minute single of Love to Love Your Baby. And it's a pretty hot song. So people put it on and people started to get off to it. And it, and it ended three and a half minutes. And someone said, hey, play that again. And they put it on again. And people started getting you know more into it. And it was getting really sexy. And people were making ads. And said, hey, play that again. Play that again. And about four played again into it. My father popped up out of, you know, a collection of, of, of bodies at the time and said, my God, the song's too short to have sex to. And he understood the power of that song was about transporting people to a fantasy of sexuality and lovemaking. And then went back to Georgia, had them cut this, you know, 17 minute version of the song, which of course we, we depict in the film, how that ultimately even gets on the radio with Frankie Crocker. Cause how do you put a 17 minute song on the radio? But that is what broke it. Now at the exact same time, 
they were trying to put out another album and another album um, for all their acts because that was the way they could extract advances from the distributors and the advances were the lifeblood of keeping the company open. So they decided to put um, you know, another Kiss album out. They got the advances and pretty quickly realized they couldn't afford a proper studio album. And But Kiss was on tour. So they said, well, let's just record a live album. Um, now, ultimately, as everyone knows, that didn't work out either. They did have to go back into the studio. Um, but they ended up accidentally capturing the sound that had been eluding them and, and what made Kiss so electric and such a spectacular band. Um, they They didn't have... Um, they, they, they didn't ultimately um, know that that live sound, which totally spurred on the audience in, in, in concerts, was what was missing from the album. So they then make this incredible album, and then there's, and we, we commented about this in the movie, and that album explodes and totally turns, turns um, the world upside down in the, in the proper way for Casablanca. So the first trigger is... Donna Summer and the new second release of Love to Love Ya. Um, and then after that, um, almost immediately on its heels is Kiss. And then, by the way, Parliament starts to actually make money. Um, and it all kind of happened remarkably in the same year, around the same time, after years, multiple years of failure after failure after failure. So it was Donna first, but it really was almost identically on the heels. Yeah, that's that's real interesting because I didn't realize the the timeline on that, and I found that really interesting. And there's a great part in the film where your dad goes to. I mean, it's it's made the case is made that Donna Summer was very much a creation of your dad in Casablanca. He gave her her stage name. He had yeah. to pull this out of her. He flew to Germany where she was living, working with Giorgio Moroder. He the the scene when he goes and has them do this 19 or 17 minute version and trying to pull this, <laughs> these orgasmic sounds out of her in that vocal booth is hysterical. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's just great stuff. I mean, I love, you know, I'm, I'm 58 years old. So I grew up with seventies and early eighties stuff. So anything that's set in that time that brings me back to being a kid and remembering that stuff is, is just awesome. And, it, and you did such a good job at portraying all that. I mean, it was entertaining but it was heartfelt and it told the story of of your dad and his perseverance and the ups and the downs and the craziness i mean i've heard about it for so long from so many people i've interviewed some of the artists that were on casablanca i've heard the stories but to put it out there was great and and if you it, do you have a few more minutes or do you have to go i don't want to yeah. keep you too long no no i'm good okay so let me ask you about this the people in the movie that are portraying yeah. these characters in some cases you actually have real musicians playing, whether it's George Clinton. And it's funny when George Clinton's saying he wants a spaceship for the stage <laughs> and all, all this great stuff. But you've got real musicians playing some of the musicians in the film. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. That, that was probably one of the, the first decisions I made was that um, – I knew there was no competing with Gladys Knight's Midnight Train to Georgia Master. <laughs> like, you could not ever compete with Ron Isley's It's Your Thing. Um, but I also thought that wasn't new information. We knew what those sounds were like. We knew what those songs ended up being. What I thought was interesting was to see where those songs came from. I wanted to do a movie that explored the origin tale um, of the first drafts of music history. I wanted to know what it was like 
um, the first time George Clinton said, we want the funk. What does that even mean? What's the funk? What, what do you want about the funk? I wanted to see the first time um, Bill Withers saying, lean on me or ain't no sunshine. And once I made that decision that I was going to tell the origin tales and basically the movie was going to explore the demos and the recording of these songs and the creation and the evolution of these songs, at that point, I knew I wasn't relying on masters that existed. We were going to create them. And if we were going to create them, we had to pay proper homage and create them with the kind of artists today that likely would have been on my father's label back then. And so when looking at who on earth do you get to play Ron Isley, who is this powerful, revolutionary performer who just owned the stage? Well, that's Jason Derulo. I mean, who else would you get? Um, the idea of who's crazy enough to encapsulate the extraordinary George Clinton, uh, that's Wiz Khalifa. Uh, but at the same time, for some of the other artists that we were looking to explore um, earlier stages in their career, uh, I always thought, who would my father cast as? Donna, or who would he cast as the young Bill Withers? And the thought was he would cast stars that were breaking today, not ones that already broke. He'd, he'd help us break them today. And so we have the incredible Pink Sweats playing Bill Withers and the amazing Taylor Parks playing Donna Summer. All of them are artists um, in their own right. Um, they have, you know, just unbelievable careers on their own. And all of them just thought the opportunity. Uh, to play these extraordinary characters uh, who all influenced them in history um, was really important. And so that was kind of the goal from the beginning. It's, it's why we cast the way we did. And I'll tell you, it was one of the most electrifying things about making the movie was because we did all live capture of these vocals when we got to the set, I didn't know what it was going to sound like when Jason Drew took that mic um, and just gave it his all to, to show what it would have been like the first time um, Ron Isley uh, sang that song for, for the great Frankie Crocker. Um, so that became a moment of discovery for me as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, as a director. But ultimately, I hope uh, it becomes something really exciting for an audience to, to, to see how these songs really came to be. The guys that play uh, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, because there is footage of them not in makeup, not as just sitting yeah. on the bus struggling. Your dad goes in and talks to Gene and all that. Were they also, are they also musicians or, or no? So, so Sam Harris, um, who's the lead singer of the ex ambassadors who plays Paul Stanley, um, is absolutely, um, as is Alex Gascard, who plays Peter Chris, um, you know, is a lead singer of all time low. So, so those are two real rock and rollers. Um, the guy who plays Gene Simmons is an incredible Broadway actor uh, named Casey likes. Um, and so, but again, I, I wasn't casting in my mind Gene Simmons. I was casting Chaim Witz, who would create the character of Gene Simmons, just like I was creating casting the guy who would be Neil Bogart's creating the character of Neil Bogart. Uh, but yeah, Sam, Sam Harris, Alice Gathcart, those guys are all you know true rock and rollers in their own right today. Uh, but Casey's just a wonderful Broadway actor. Yeah, ex-ambassadors, I actually interviewed them once for a TV show I was doing, so I didn't realize that. But uh, they were all great. And I guess the biggest... I mean, not guess. I mean, clearly the biggest casting decision for you had to be who's going to play your dad, who's going to capture it. <laughs> and uh, you, you, uh, you the, the, the actor in the film, his name is Jeremy Jordan. And I got to tell you, Tim, I thought he was, I mean, I didn't know your dad, but I thought he was phenomenal. Um, oh, I thought his performance you. was great. Thank you. Um, yes. He, you know, I, Casting one's paired, I think, is probably the oddest exercise one, one can have. Um, 
but it, but over the years, you know, I, I explored different possibilities to play him. But when I was finally putting together this iteration, and and, and we had you know we, two months before shooting, and we were in pre-production, I had cast all the other roles, but not my dad. And people kept coming, you know, we probably should cast the lead. And I said, I, I know, but I I can't find the guy who's going to embody this spirit um, because it really is this extraordinary life force that, that my father is. Um, and there was actually another actor that, that I'd you know, gone pretty far down the road with, and I was just about to cast him. Um, and I suddenly had this like moment of, of, of flop sweat where I was like, this is, this is the wrong decision. Um, and, I, and I called Larry Mark, uh, who's a producing partner of me, uh, mine on the film, who you know, did Greatest Showman and Dreamgirls and Jerry Maguire. And I said, Larry, I think we're making a terrible mistake. Um, I, I don't think this guy that we're talking about, we should cast. We need someone who's more actually unknown in the film world because, you know, the idea is that we're going to introduce people to someone they don't know. They know all these acts, but we want this Neil character to be a bit of a cipher. Um, and he has to be able to just devour the audience with that performance. And I said, who's the best Broadway actor working today? And he said, Jeremy Jordan. And I said, I have absolutely no idea who that is. <laughs> I went home um, and, and did a YouTube search and spent about eight hours going down this rabbit hole of these incredible performances by Jeremy Jordan. If anybody has time, please do it. He's one of the most extraordinary um, performers you will see. And I watched this guy just tell stories to that audience in a way that lifted you up and carried you away. And uh, I guess a little bit like my dad, I jumped on the red eye the next night, um, didn't even know who his representatives were, landed in New York, finally found out who his agents were, demanded a meeting, um, met with Jeremy after he was, he was on Broadway at the time. Um, and uh, the most uh, important creative decision I think I've ever made in my career. Yeah, he did, he turns in a great, great performance. It really is uh, fantastic. So, I, again, I could talk to you about the movie forever. I, I appreciate the time you've given me. Again, the movie's called Spinning Gold. It's out a week from tomorrow, and I really, you know, I mean, I'll be honest with you, Tim. I mean, when a, a film like this comes out, the initial reaction from a lot of people is like, oh, man, that could – that could be really bad you know, if it's not if it's not done well and the music's not legit or the performances. Because let's be honest, we've seen a lot of people take swings at things like this that uh, either people think are bad or don't happen. I mean, you know, I thought of the TV show Vinyl a little bit when I watched this because sure. that was set in the 70s as well. And I'm one of the few people I loved Vinyl. I was so bummed when it was canceled. I thought it was fantastic. But you know, there's people that didn't like that so much, or there's people that saw the trailers for this and are like, oh, you know, that could end up being really bad. But when I heard that it was, you know, it was you, the son of Neil, that was making it, I'm like, this is going to be done at a certain level with a certain amount of care. And right to the very end, when you actually show home movies and put that stuff up at the end, I mean, it brings it, it all just connects it to the fact that, hey, this this was not just some fairy tale crazy story. This was a very personal thing for you to get your dad's story out there. And I thought putting the real footage at the end of you in the pool with them and everything, I thought that was a, a brilliant way to end it and really brought it all oh, home. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, that. it was really, really cool. So the last thing before I let you go is who owns Casablanca records now? Is it universal? Do you have any stake in the label itself? No, no. I mean, when he sold poly, uh, first half to Polygram, uh, when he left, and then Polygram absorbed it completely, and then Universal, because of the, the Universal-Polygram relationship, absorbed that. And then it was dormant for, for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, but it's now a very active uh, dance label. Um, but uh, no, we have nothing to do with it anymore other than 
kind of the thrill that it's still out there. And and lastly, I know I've said lastly a couple of times, but things keep <laughs> popping in my head. I'm sorry, but but um, do why do you think? And this just hit me too. The only band, to my knowledge, the only rock act that Casablanca broke was Kiss. Um, there were other rock acts on the label. Angel comes to mind and some others. Yeah. Why do you think that your dad ended up doing so well with dance and pop music, uh, but never really broke another rock band besides Kiss? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, only in that I think Kiss was so singular in their vision um, I don't necessarily think it was rock versus non-rock, although I do think once disco hit, it consumed everything and it became a money-making machine and it's all anybody wanted. And I think everyone kind of lost themselves down that rabbit hole. And, and, and even as, as, you know, I was made for loving you, even even Kiss was forced you know, to, to have to do some disco along the way. Right. Um, so I don't think it was that it was rock necessarily. I just think that you know, Kiss was so singular. They were such an important act. And that's what my father fell in love with. And he saw the same vision that those guys had for themselves. And I think it was about the love for that, just as it was the love for Parliament, just like it was the love for Donna. But I think once disco took over, I just think it consumed everything. Um, I mean, and I don't know that to be true. That's something I'm, I'm not speaking from someone saying that that's what it is. Um, but but that definitely is, um, is um what I think happened. I think, I think in disco ate it all. Do you have your dad's archives? Like, did you ever go into a storage lockup and find like some amazing stuff from that period? Yeah, we do. I mean, you know, you know, there's, there's, and we had it on the set, you know, there were, there were still handwritten notes. Um, you know, there were you know, notes jotted down on different billboard, you know, um, magazines. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was kept. And then we were able to actually populate the set with it, give it to our other actors. So they were always kind of touching the real stuff that, that was there uh, during those days. It was, it was amazing. So cool, man. Well, listen, thank you for the time. Uh, congratulations Absolutely. on the film. Again, it's called Spinning Gold. It is out everywhere a week from tomorrow. And uh, Tim, hope to um, maybe maybe get to meet you when I'm in L.A. next time or something and grab a drink. I'd love to to shoot the shit with you some more about oh, this. And, and, and even more so now after the audience and the world gets a chance to see it a week from tomorrow. <laughs> oh, so good to. luck with the opening and the premiere. And uh, so hope it goes well for you, man. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, I did enjoy that movie. I hope you have had a chance to see it. And if you are going to see it, there's a little backstory on it from Tim Bogart, the writer and director of Spinning Gold, now in theaters. Earlier, of course, we thank Tommy Shaw for joining me on the podcast. If you missed anything, just, well, rewind it and check it out again on the podcast. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything and you get the new episodes when they hit every Thursday. And if you're in the U.S. or Canada and you're not joining me on SiriusXM, please come on board and become a subscriber. And you can hear Trunk Nation live every day, Monday through Friday, with calls, news, analysis, and the guests and interviews that you hear a little taste of here on the podcast. Trunk Nation, Monday through Friday, Faction Talk Channel 103, 3 to 5 Eastern Time Live, or anytime on the SiriusXM app. And for those on board with SiriusXM, there is a sixth show on Mondays only, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, playing your music as well. So a lot of good stuff, a lot of good content if you're not already on board with us on the radio show. Glad to bring you a few items from it here on the podcast. At Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook page, 
And if you happen to be in southern New Jersey, join me on April 14th in Tuckerton. I'll be doing my next speaking Q&A show. That's at the Lizzie Rose Music Room. Tickets are on sale, and all tickets also include a meet and greet. Again, April 14th, Lizzie Rose Music Room in Tuckerton, New Jersey, for my next appearance speaking Q&A show. Many more to come, including stuff coming up in May in Detroit and Chicago. I'll be at Diesel in Detroit and at the Vixen Theater in Chicago. So a lot of cool speaking Q&A shows coming in. Hope to, hope to see you out in those cities as well. Keep an eye on my social media for info and updates. Have a great week, everybody. Hope to catch you on the radio. If not, back here next Thursday for another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast.